0: If you're new to New Help, welcome, glad that you're here. And if you're part of the broadcast audience and you just tuned in, thanks for joining us. Um, We prayed in the beginning of the service for the events that happened at MSU and how we might be used later this week and this month. Uh, I'll pray with you again about that in just a moment and those issues, and we're going to look at that in some of the context of what we're looking at this morning. But I want you to understand where we're at in our studies together. We're going to put a bow tie on Genesis this morning. And it's gonna come to a culmination where we finish Genesis 50. Now, you might be thinking back to the fact that we were in Genesis 45 last week. And that means this morning we're gonna cover chapter 46, 47, 48, 49, and 50. How excited are you, right? (laughs) Okay. Um, I, I want you to know where we're headed in this E2E study. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through a study called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. We started a year ago in Genesis chapter one. This point, we've made it to the very end of Genesis. Next week we'll start with Moses and the story in Exodus. You're going to find things that are probably moving at a little bit faster pace, especially this morning. I want you to understand that as you look at what we're about to step into in the book of Exodus next week, it will profoundly affect the way that you have used Scripture and how you live out your life with God. So I hope that you're able to be part of that study together. Before we step into these things together, I specifically want to pray with you about the five students who are going through the recovery process at the hospital right now, and the families who have been so greatly affected, both by the loss and by the wounding, and for the entire MSU and LCC community. So would you join me and let's pray together for both of those issues. Father, once again we're reminded of what was written for us that we don't always know how to pray, that in the words that we should or in, in the way that we would form our thoughts that would even seem to make coherent sense at times. And many, many of us found that to be true this last week. We just find ourselves left in shock. But gratefully, God, you know that about us and, and you know that you can intervene and you even with the power of the Holy Spirit choose to make groanings and utterings on our behalf. So we thank you for that reality. Right now, we're groaning on behalf of those who are in the hospital, those five students, Father, especially those who are in very dire situations. We ask that you would restore them, that there would be a future for them. God, we ask for the family members as well, that you would be close to them because we know that you're the God of all comfort, and you can bring comfort to each of us just as you can to them. Father, in a greater way, we ask that you would use these circumstances to bring people into relationship with you, and that you would cause an outpouring of a desire to know more about what lies in store in eternity. With that in mind, Father, we turn our attention to what we're about to study, and we would ask for ourselves, and it almost seems selfish at this point, God, but we're asking for it, that you would teach us this morning that we would know better who we are before you, and that we would in turn impact our community. So we pray for these things in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. I asked an overarching question about five weeks ago when we stepped into the study regarding Joseph and the overarching question was related to you, but it also relates to the story that you were looking at in regards to Joseph. And here's the question that I asked, does God allow those whom He loves to go through difficult circumstances? In a much broader way, here's the way I actually asked it in context. You see it on the screen. Does God allow those whom He loves to go through difficult circumstances in order to accomplish His larger purpose? I think you could emphatically say yes. And I can point you to reasons in Scripture that you would say emphatically yes. And I want you to see this morning how we know that to be true. But I'm gonna give you an example first of all. Let me take you to the book of Acts. Peter is speaking, Jesus has been crucified, resurrected, and He's ascended into heaven, and Peter is speaking before a crowd of thousands of individuals, and he makes this statement regarding Jesus. Acts 2.23, this man, meaning Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and put Him to death, but God raised Him up again. Being raised up again was not because things got wildly out of control and God was just a bystander at an accident scene. Being raised up again by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God is speaking of something very specific. It's not as though God could not keep them from killing Jesus, so He had to fix it by resurrecting Jesus. Do not look at it that way. Jesus was determined to be delivered over by the foreknowledge of God because it was part of God's plan in order to accomplish something much, much larger. God is not a bystander at an accident scene. He is not a bystander at the accident scenes in your life. He's intimately involved. He is a sovereign God. So know this right off the top, whether it's on the events of the campus on MSU or it's in your own personal life, the tragedies that you have experienced or may yet to experience in the remainder of your life. When God allows hard circumstances to come into the lives of those whom he loves, it does not mean that God loves that individual any less or that he has abandoned them. Please know that to be a biblical truth. The sovereign nature of God, meaning that he rules over everything, the sovereign nature of God assures us that while humans may do the wrong thing and completely for the wrong reasons, God is so great that He can cause that same evil to accomplish a greater purpose. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. That is a truth of Scripture. Romans speaks to that very specifically, that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. So know this as you come into this section with Joseph, it is the prerogative and the capacity of God to bring good out of evil in a much more succinct and very appropriate way. God said it way better than me. He always does. Look with me on the screen at Psalm 7610, for the wrath of man shall praise you. That could actually even say, for even the wrath of man shall praise you. We don't know how God's going to bring good out of the circumstances on the campus of MSU that happened this last week, but we know according to Scripture He can do that, He will do that for those who are called according to His purpose, for those who love God. Now, if Jesus is example A of that, that God allowed those things to happen, if He's example A of that truth... What we've examined in Joseph and what we're about to look at right now, it reinforces that truth over and over and over. Here's a good example of that, Genesis 45, 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, if you read the story, you would say, yes, they did. They actually sold him into slavery. But Joseph has a better theological understanding of this. He's saying, you may have meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But God sent me here, and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So if I could put it in context, it's this way. Joseph is telling his brothers, the very same ones who sold him into slavery, it was my sovereign Lord who saw far into the future. God knows the needs of this world, and He knows it intimately, and He chose to work through me. So He's saying to them, God chose to work outside of you and beyond your intentions. He planned it all. Now up to this point, I understand that we've been moving at the speed of turtle through the book of Genesis. We're about to move at warp speed. And I wanted to just tell you that so you understand in the way that we're walking through this this morning as Joseph pulls back the veil and allows us to see what's been going on behind the scenes. We touched on this just briefly last week in verse 10. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Now he's saying that to his brothers, they're about to go back to Canaan land to get their dad Jacob who doesn't know that Joseph is alive. They're leaving Egypt, they're heading back with all this food and with a bunch of empty wagons and their job is to bring their dad back down to Egypt. So we're told specifically that 70 people of the immediate descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. and about. 300 others who are servants, who are employees, who work for Jacob, they're going to move to Egypt along with their wives and all of their children. So we find this in chapter 45, verse 25. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he indeed is a ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, that's Jacob, also by, he goes by the same name, he goes by the name Israel and by the name Jacob. Then Israel said, it is enough, my son Joseph is still alive, I will go and see him before I die. Now you might remember back a couple weeks ago when Jacob was hearing the news about Simeon being held captive in Egypt when he cried out, all these things are against me. Nothing is going the way that it's supposed to go. This is the exact same guy who can look at the situation and now say, oh, I guess things are working together for good, I guess God is actually working out a plan here. So we find in chapter 46 verse one, so Israel, meaning Jacob, set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba. Context. Jacob's packing all of his belongings, he's gathering his family together and begins this long trek all the way down to Egypt. But it's when he arrives at Beersheba that it appears that the full impact of what he's about to do is really hitting him. Beersheba sits right on the border, literally, between southern Israel and northern Egypt, but it's still in the Promised Land, it's still in what we would call Canaan today. And he's feeling this full impact of what he's about to do. So he's at the extreme southern border of Canaan. And he knows that God said that Abram sinned by going into Egypt. And he knows that his dad, Isaac, was told not to go into Egypt. And so Jacob's at a crossroads here at the extreme southern border. And if he goes any further, he's going to be leaving the land that God had promised to them. This is like Frodo and Samwise Ganges standing outside the Shire, saying, if I go one step further, i will be further than I've ever been from the Shire. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's the Lord of the Rings. He's recognizing, I'm in a very dangerous place. So question, how can Jacob be sure that he's in God's will if he physically steps over the border and leaves the land of promise? This is a very, very difficult decision. He's had no direction from God. He's had the invitation from Joseph. And Pharaoh has personally said, I want you to come. And he knows that Joseph is living in Egypt now. And on top of that, this famine that's covering the planet's surface around the area that they live in, it's devastating. And there's food in Egypt. And, And the reality is this all points to a fulfillment of what God had spoken to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Remember, God said to Abraham, know for sure, Abraham, that your offspring, they will be strangers and foreigners in a land that is not theirs, where they will be slaves for 400 years. He can certainly see that this could be the setup for that. He certainly has understanding of what his dad had passed on to him. So if you know your Bible, you know that this is pointing to two things that Jacob is very, very aware of. He knows that for Israel, the nation, to get full possession of the promised land, the iniquity of the Amorites has to be complete, speaking biblical language here, and he knows that the family of Israel has to become a nation. Now, both of those conditions are still in the future. They haven't happened yet. But if he stays in Canaan, the result's going to be death because there's nothing but famine there. Yet he doesn't have God's blessing to leave. What is he supposed to do? You've hit times like this where you're overwhelmed with a decision. What do you do when you're overwhelmed and you don't know which way to turn? Well, hopefully what you do is you go to your knees, and that's exactly what you find Jacob doing. He's worshiping, and he's seeking God's direction, and we're told this in verse 1, chapter 46, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So Israel packed his belongings, he heads to Beersheba, and hits the brakes, and he decides this is the place. I've got to ask if God is in this. And just as with his father and with his grandfather, it's right there that he's reassured by God's Word. Instead of Egypt becoming this place of defeat, Egypt is going to be this place of blessing and Israel the man will become Israel the nation. Check this. In spite of huge suffering, in spite of great tribulation, God's going to be with him, and we find this in verse 2. God spoke to Israel, meaning Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Now, God's giving three very specific assurances to Jacob. He's saying, it is my will for you to go there. And I want you to know it's my will by these three things. Just as I told Abraham I'm going to make him a great nation, I will make you a great nation. And I will bring you back up into Canaan. So I'm going to go with you to Egypt and I'm going to bring you back. But he brings him back as a dead man. They carry his bones out and they bury him in the promised land. And then he puts the cherry on top of the ice cream. And he says, Joseph is going to be there and he's going to close your eyes, and that's the first confirmation that Jacob has actually had. Joseph is really alive, and he's actually there. Now, it appears to me that this fantastic news of Joseph is restoring not only his physical vigor, but it's restoring his spiritual focus, and Jacob gets re-centered with God, And with this confirmation, Jacob's entire family can enthusiastically move down to Egypt. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 46, all the way down to verse 29. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, "'Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive.'" Now, Pharaoh has already promised to Joseph that his family is going to get the best of the best. They're going to get the cream of the crop. They get any place they want to live in Egypt, and Joseph is determined to see this become a reality. Well, Goshen is located in the northeast quadrant of Egypt. It sits right at the mouth of the Nile River, and it's a very, very fertile area, a great area for growing crops, a great area for feeding your livestock, and this is where they're going to settle in this land of Goshen excellent place if you've got livestock. So his family arrives in Goshen, but they arrive before he can get there to greet them. So the section we're being told about here is that Joseph rolls up in his royal chariot, and he's got all the splendor of Egypt at his disposal. He can put himself on display, but Jacob's already arrived, and he's got the 20 or 30 wagons that Pharaoh sent to bring them back over into Egypt, and it's here In Genesis 46, around verse 29, that for the first time in 22 years, the dad and the son lay eyes on each other. And you need to know that much of the intimacy that happened in that moment obviously isn't recorded here, but we can read some things between the lines because of the ancient Hebrew language. And the ancient Hebrew language captures the concept of Joseph intending to present himself before his father in this extraordinary splendor of appearance of what the original language says. But it's as soon as he sees his daddy, as soon as he sees this ancient Hebrew father, that this great leader of Egypt is reduced to a boy crying on the shoulders of his dad. Because his heart is just breaking. And and to be sure, there are tears of joy and there are tears of regret. But I'm thinking there's also tears of laughter because they've got a great future now. Understanding that this is a very bright future for them. And so we find in verse 5 of chapter 47. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Now, that's quite a promotion for the sons of Jacob. They came into Egypt just hoping to feed their family. And now suddenly, they're going to be the personal herdsmen of Pharaoh's livestock? But there's something that you should know that goes along with that. They're herdsmen, meaning they're not highly regarded regarded by the Egyptian people. The Egyptians don't hang out with the Semites. The Canaanites, those individuals who live up in that region, and they certainly don't hang out with those who are herdsmen. We saw an example of that when they had the banquet together at Joseph's palace, and they wouldn't even eat together. So we have these individuals who have to live in a different region because the Egyptians don't want to hang out with them. Well, that Pharaoh put them in the land of Goshen was very politically astute because these individuals are politically separate and culturally separate. Socially separate, religiously separate. So he chooses the most fertile region in all of Egypt to put these 300-plus people and to keep them separated from his Egyptian population. Now, when Joseph reports the arrival of his family, he knows that Pharaoh is going to want an interview with his dad, and so he sets it up. We find that in verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Verse 11, so Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food. Now, I'm guessing Pharaoh must have been really anxious to meet this guy. The father of Joseph, the one who has rescued their nation, he wants to meet his dad, and the first thing you find Jacob doing is he's blessing Pharaoh in the name of God. Now, you might think that's really strange, that Jacob is putting his blessing on a, a pagan Pharaoh of Egypt, but this is really consistent with the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant contains a promise that Abraham's offspring... The Jewish people would be a blessing to the entire world that they would bring blessings to this planet, to all those who bless them. God says, I'm going to bless them in return. So what we've found Pharaoh doing is he greatly exalted Joseph, and he abundantly gave him a lot of wealth and a lot of resources. And now he's just extended the blessing to the whole population, these 300 plus who have come out of the promised land. And he's given them the very best of the land. So logically, Jacob, in turn, is responding by pronouncing the blessing of God upon Pharaoh. And very interestingly, indeed, that's exactly what happens next. God's blessing is dumped out on Pharaoh, and he's blessed beyond measure. Joseph, just for context, has literally saved that nation. He's the one who put the entire operation into process to keep them from starving to death. And as a result, in this next section, what you're about to see is that Pharaoh is going to obtain almost all of Egypt's wealth, and it's the outworking of the Abrahamic blessing because God is always good to his word, church. God is always good to the things that he says he's going to do. Watch with me. Chapter 47, verse 11. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered, and Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. So Pharaoh's allowing Joseph's family to settle in the very best of the land. They're more than adequately prepared for, but here's the caveat, the native Egyptians, Those who live in the rest of the land, they're barely making it, they're starving. Famine has reduced them to paupers and they're barely able to sustain their own lives and survival mode kicks in. So they come to Joseph and they say, we're starving. All of our money is gone, we can't buy any more grain, the famine's gone on for two years. What we'll do is we'll turn over our real estate to you and we'll turn over our artwork and we'll even sell ourselves. We'll make ourselves slaves. Just give us some food. So we find this in verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you may sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh and four fifths shall be your own seed of the field and for food for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt valid to this day, that Pharaoh should have a fifth. Only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. And now as a side note, Moses throws this in. Oh yeah, by the way, look with me. Now Israel, the nation, lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen And they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. So Israel is flourishing. They're reproducing like rabbits. And they're inside Egypt and they're buying real estate and they're picking up businesses and they're growing as a people while the famine is reducing the Egyptians to poverty. Let me just summarize for you what's coming. The remaining five years of the famine came and went and the egyptian people became poorer and poorer and poorer and they're turning over everything that they have they have to sell it all to pharaoh and then eventually they do sell themselves into slavery and they become pharaoh's servants just in order to survive in order to make food distribution easier joseph commands that everybody moves into the cities for the five remaining years of the famine they have to leave the fields they have to leave the countries and move the whole population into the cities But he allows them to go out and work their former farms, and by the time the famine ends, Pharaoh owns Boardwalk and Park Place. He's got it all, and he's got the hotels all the way around the Monopoly board. He possesses all the money in Egypt, he possesses all the real estate, and he possesses the lives of the people, except except for that little group of 300 up in northeastern Egypt who keep reproducing and reproducing and buying more land and becoming more and more wealthy, and they're living in this region known as Ramesses. Not only has Joseph saved the nation from starvation, but he also sets up an economic system which has enabled Pharaoh to control everything. What are the people of Israel doing during this time? They're multiplying. They're becoming such a large group that by the time Moses leads them out, There'll be more than two million of them who will leave Egypt to head towards the promised land, but that's for the book of Exodus. Now, this is really worth noting before we come into the ending of this. Pharaoh is a pagan ruler. God knows that about Pharaoh. Yet because of Joseph's very diligent work and using his intellect as an employee under Pharaoh, working for him, God has used Pharaoh to care for Jacob's family who will soon be a nation, which is a match for Proverbs 21. Look with me on the screen. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I only throw that in for this reason. It's kind of a side note for you. Too many people think that God will only use his own people, especially in places of authority. The truth is, God will work through those, even those who are unbelieving leaders. He will work through the pharaohs. He will work through the Caesars if it means accomplishing his purposes. Now we do come into the ending. Jacob knows the end is near. And he needs to take care of some details in order because the end of his life is coming. He needs to take care of some details because... He hasn't carried something out yet. And so he musters up enough strength to sit up in bed. Apparently, he's on his deathbed, literally, and he wants to talk to Joseph. We find this in chapter 48, verse five. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. So just let me summarize this for you. Jacob's concern is that an adoption takes place. He wants Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to literally become sons of Israel. He wants them to become tribal leaders because Reuben and Simeon have really displeased God. And the inheritance is going to go to these two youngsters who are the sons of Joseph. Now, they're in their early twenties, and he brings them in, and Jacob pronounces a blessing over them, and as a result, Manasseh and Ephraim will have an inheritance. Let's track this. This family has a lot of cash. Abraham was greatly blessed of God. He passed it all on to Isaac. Isaac was greatly blessed of God. He passes it all on to Jacob. Jacob lives 130 years and he's worked hard throughout the course of his life and he's generated even more wealth. And from generation to generation, this wealth just keeps increasing because of the Lord's blessing. And God's gonna make sure that it falls into the hands of the right members of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the rest of chapter 49 is Jacob bringing his sons in before him and pronouncing blessings and curses over them. And then he comes to the point where it's time to die. We find this in chapter 49, verse 33. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And the scene is very, very solemn. Jacob has nothing more to say. He's completed it all. He's lived in Egypt for 17 years now. He's lived to see Joseph as ruler over all of Egypt. He draws himself up into the bed, lays down, and breathes his last and steps into the realm of eternity with his sons surrounding him and his God waiting for him on the other side, that we could all pass that way. That would be awesome. But he leaves behind the nucleus of a future great nation. Joseph's reaction is next. Chapter 50 verse 1, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians went away, wept for him for 70 days. First thing you should know is the Semitic people from the land of Canaan, they are not ashamed to show their emotions and very, very open with it. And Joseph does not let his important office smother his grief, and just as God said, The nearest relative, the custom was that the nearest relative to the person dying would be the one to reach over and close their eyes, and exactly what God said would happen. That's what Joseph does for his dad, and then he weeps and weeps, and then he does something remarkable. You might miss the detail. He chose physicians to embalm his dad. People came to me after the nine o'clock service saying, what's up with that? Why why is a, a Jewish man being embalmed in Egypt like the mummies were at that time? Well, understand they've got a long journey all the way back to Canaan to bury him and they're going to do that, his bones will be carried out. And by that point he would be really decomposing, so he's doing a favor to the family for one. But there's also this thing, he chose the physicians. The official embalmers in Egypt were belonging to the hierarchy and they were not physicians, they were the official embalmers who worked in a special class like morticians do today. But Joseph chose his own personal physicians to embalm his dad. What does that do? Well, they're avoiding all the pagan rituals that go with the Egyptian customs. Every time they would take out an organ, they would offer it before the god Ra. Joseph doesn't want that to happen for his dad. So he chooses his own physicians just to carry out a medical procedure. And then Pharaoh commands all of Egypt to go into this official time of 70-day mourning much like we do when we put flags at half-mast at banks and post offices and government buildings. But this is an honor that's reserved for only the highest of the highest, typically reserved for Pharaoh himself. But Pharaoh says, we're going to do this for Jacob. And then Joseph makes his long first trip all the way back to his homeland in 39 years. He's 56 years old at this point takes his dad with his brothers. They returned all the way back to Canaan. They bury their dad, and then they come back to Egypt, and they've got to get back to work. And I did all of this that I just did with you to get to this. Look at this. Chapter 50, verse 15. When when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him?" So they sent a message to Joseph. They're so very afraid of their brother. They're so very afraid of Joseph that they personally have to send a message to him. They're so afraid they won't come into his presence. They want something delivered to him. Why? Because they don't believe that they really have been forgiven. They don't believe that they really have been accepted. In spite of the gracious ways that Joseph has spoken to them, in spite of the very loving ways that he's entreated them, seemingly it's not made much of an impact on their mind. And it is a really cruel gesture and a reaction on their part that Joseph's brothers say to them, Joseph's going to hate us. He's going to pay us back. It's really cruel after all that he's done for them. So, how does Joseph respond? Look with me on the screen. Verse 17 And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He's deeply hurt. He's wounded at the core because his brothers don't believe that they have been forgiven. What more could he possibly do to convince them that the forgiveness has been extended to them? What more could he possibly extend, verse 18, as if the message wasn't enough? Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants, Because they can't accept the forgiveness that's been extended to them, that they're free from penalty, they want to sell themselves to Joseph and say, we'll be your servants. We want to earn our way back. It's too much. They can't believe that they have been forgiven. So they offer to become servants and work their way back to the place where they think they'll be accepted which is not any different than many Christians today. Many individuals who are constantly worrying about God's judgment. There is a prevalent belief among people that when things go off the rails in our life, when we encounter hard issues, that it's payback, that God's somehow getting even with us. I am not suggesting that God does not discipline those whom he loves, he absolutely does that, but that's an entirely different issue. When you doubt God's Word and His promises that He has fully forgiven you through the finished work of Jesus, you know what happens as a result of that? You begin to question whether or not God's love is real. And we do that because we begin thinking, I don't feel forgiven. I'm not sure I am forgiven. I don't know that that really applied to my life. I've done some huge things. And when that happens, it's easy to give up hope for the future because of this, faith, hope, and love, they go together. When you give up on one of those, the others collapse. How we feel is way different than what God says. Those are two different things. Never ever judge God's eternal word by your shifting emotions. And I say that to myself because I do that too. We're all guilty of that. So I have to hearken back to the things that are written in Scripture, and Scripture says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who is against us? That's a really good question. Thank you, Paul, for asking that. Church, I'm going to ask you just to say out loud when I say, if God is for us, who is against us? If you believe no one, that you say out loud, no one. If God is for us, who is against us? Absolutely the truth of Scripture. He goes on to say, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Does God allow those whom he loves to go through difficult circumstances? Absolutely yes, for a purpose. Do we always understand the purposes? No. Will we one day? I hope so. I hope heaven makes things a whole lot more clear than what we know now. Absolutely yes, if the relationship is there. So when things go off the rails in your life, and when you hit hard issues in your world, Do not conclude that God has abandoned you or that he has not forgiven you. Paul knew that that wasn't just enough to write what he just wrote, so he puts a topping on that statement. Pick it up in verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? with tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. In all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, amen, and amen. Now... If your personal approach to God's forgiveness is that you have to earn your way just like Joseph's brothers thought they did, you need to learn Ephesians 2, specifically verse 8, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and He has given it to you. It's not the result of works so that no one can boast. Thank you for that clarity. Now, you might think that's a really good place to end, but it's not. Give me three minutes. Take you back into where Joseph is at at this moment in time. We've worked a year to get to this point. Let's see how Joseph resolved this issue. Chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. How hard is that to do? To get outside of your human emotions and allow your theology of God to eclipse your human emotions. I would say really hard. I would say absolutely impossible if it isn't for the Spirit of God working through you. To be able to forgive in the way that Joseph has expressed forgiveness here is absolutely because God is at work. So hear it again. Joseph allows his theology, his understanding of the nature of God, He allows his theology to eclipse his human emotions. Now, you might think that's a really good place to end, but it's not. We've seen in Genesis this spectacular picture of Jesus. Just for a moment, bear with me. In the very beginning, think back to when we started this E2E study. The decision that Adam and Eve made to rebel against God brought sin and evil into our planet. And when God shows up on the scene, God slays two animals to create a covering of skins for them. He removes the fig leaves that they've covered themselves with. And for God to cover Adam and Eve with these animal skins required the shedding of blood and the death of the animals. Death and the shedding of blood go hand in hand with the work of God. Now, that's at the beginning of Genesis. At the very end of Genesis, we have just seen that for 17 years, Joseph's brothers lived under this massive cloud of fear that when dad's gone, we're in big trouble. All because they didn't really trust. When Jacob was gone, they thought their only defense was gone. And so Jacob's death points to the culmination of Genesis to remind you and I of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That when Jesus sets you free, New Hope, you are free indeed. You are really, really free in Jesus. There's no need to keep going back and taking punishment for something that Jesus already paid for. Let it go. Let it go. He died for your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. It's the finished work of Jesus. So as God's own children, through faith in Jesus Christ, we're told that your sins are forgiven. They are blotted out and buried in the depths of the sea, remembered no more. In other words, God's not going to hold them against you. So new hope, final question for you this morning. Are God's promises true? Then live like it. Live like that. Believe what God says. The old life is buried. You walk in newness of life. And I'm here to tell you this morning for a world, especially in the Lansing community, that desperately needs to hear a message of hope, you have that message of hope. You know what to communicate to the people in your social circle. Carry it out there because they're asking questions. If there was ever a time to engage with people about God's truth, it's now. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me as we wrap this up. Would you stand with me if you're able to so that we can close this time in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul who's part of what we're doing right now. And I ask for your blessing upon this time that we've taken to study your word, to know your word, and understand how your word impacts us in the decisions that we make to know that you cause all things to work together for good even when we do not understand it and we are utterly without words. God, I ask that you would intervene and remind us that you are a sovereign God who loves us with immeasurable love. So as your people, we put ourselves out there, God, and we ask that you would use us to work in the midst of this community this week. Send us out as your ambassadors And I do pray that your blessing would rest on the efforts that we put forth on behalf of your kingdom. We ask for this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ our Savior and all God's people said.